And I can't tell you just how happy I am to be at Wellesley. Uh, if you can believe it, I lived in Boston for four years uh, in my formative youth, and every day of those years, it seemed I was just about to go to Wellesley, and I never made it till here. So I really want to thank uh, Professor Doherty and her colleagues for bringing me here today and for including me in um, the Distinguished Writer series. No one has ever called me a Distinguished Writer before, and I, I don't think they'll ever call me one again, so I'm cherishing um, this moment. My, my only embarrassment is that I'm, as you heard, I'm traveling with this a very strange and shadowy book about Graham Greene, uh, and I actually don't recommend you try it at home. Uh, I'm like most of the people in this room. I think I'm a very enthusiastic reader, and I'm always foisting my recommendations on my friends. And I've been telling them in the last few weeks, please don't read my book, because there are so many other books that are more diverting and, and charming than this. Uh, this is a bit of a dark experiment, like, uh, like the time I once took myself on holiday to North Korea, which uh, is not something I recommend to everybody. Um, but I should tell you a little bit about it, and I'll tell you a minimum, because Arthur and I are going to have a conversation. But... <clears throat> I think it arose out of a friend that I have, and many of us have this very friend, who couldn't listen to Joni Mitchell records because it seemed to her that Joni Mitchell had stolen her diaries and released them to the world. Um, and yet for the same reason, of course, she couldn't stop listening to Joni Mitchell records. And I would come into the room, this was many years ago, and find her sitting on the floor, stubbing out cigarettes on the carpet, and listening again and again to A Case of You or Little Green or the older people here will remember those songs from Blue, uh, rending songs about loneliness and love gone wrong and pregnancies with unhappy endings. And around the same time, I had another friend who identified so closely with Henry James that uh, he, he barely could read Henry James' novels because he felt that James knew him so well that he was not just describing his past and not just describing right now, but actually telling his future. And he felt that if he picked up a Henry James' book from 1882 or whenever, he would be reading what he was going to go through the following year. And that was too much for him. Uh, and I don't think... The examples are so important, but I do think that probably everybody in this room has some such figure, or several such figures, in their heads. And it might be an actor, or a singer, or a writer, or character from history, but somehow they seem to know us better than our own friends and family do. And so they become almost like shadow siblings, or like ghost fathers. Uh, and, of course, that's almost, I'd say, the point of reading, which is you pick up a book, and for ten hours you descend into the mind of somebody else. And if that person has descended deeply enough into his own being or into that of his characters, you come to know his most intimate guilts and terrors and betrayals as you don't even know the intimate secrets of uh, your own parents. And of course, in the celebrity culture, every day we're reading about somebody who is convinced that he's Gwyneth Paltrow's other half or secret self, if only she would wake up to that fact. <laughs> Uh, and I, I, like all of us, have many such people in my head, but one of them, as you heard, is the late English novelist Graham Greene, and probably most of you know him through novels like The Quiet American or The Power and the Glory or Our Man in Havana, or maybe through the movie, the classic movie that he wrote, The Third Man. And I could give you lots of reasons why I feel this kinship, but I don't think I would believe those reasons myself. Um, I, I grew up in the same really middle-class England that he grew up, on the same road around the corner from where he had lived. And I went through the same classic old English boarding schools that he went through. 
And maybe because of those, like him, I never have been very good at settling into one family or one community. As you were hearing, I think like Ato, I'm constantly on the move. And in the course of my wanderings, I found my way to Havana and Saigon and Haiti and Paraguay and all these places that he wrote about so memorably. And I've always, as he was, been fascinated by the paradoxes or the complexities of faith. And yet, I think the real power of affinity lies in its mystery and the fact that you can't explain it away, that you walk into a crowded room like this and you see a stranger and somehow you feel as if you know her better than the friends that you came with. So as I've been going through the world, I've often felt as if I'm stumbling through a Graham Greene novel, almost as if I'm just a, a figment of his imagination or as if he's scripting my life. So um, maybe I will just give, read a little bit from the beginning of the book to give you one sense of um, how that, that works. And I, I apologize in advance for perhaps the political incorrectness of this, but this is just a description of um, one scene. <clears throat> I was in Saigon one autumn and had just checked into the Hotel Majestic along the Saigon River. It was midnight, which meant 10 in the morning in California where I'd woken up and the day for me was just beginning. I walked along Dong Khoi Street towards the Hotel Continental, a central site in Green's novel, The Quiet American, and as I did so, I wondered how much places or people ever really change. They adopt new fashions with the seasons, lose hair or see crow's feet gather around their eyes, and yet the girl who was once nine years old is still visible in the grandmother of 84. Dong Khoi, or Simultaneous Uprising Street, was alive with the somewhat illicit energy I recalled from an earlier trip, 13 years before. The sound of Layla drifted up from an underground bar, and when I looked into another 60s-themed place, the Jefferson Airplane were playing White Rabbit, I saw Japanese couples sipping shyly at Lynchburg lemonades and Girl Scout cookies. Men in the shadows whispered promises of exotic pleasures, and Ciclo drivers pedaled slowly past sometimes with a young woman in their throne, sometimes stopping to ask if I wanted a friend for the night. As I made my way down the street, massage, massage, murmured the men who were standing around, a young woman on a motorbike suddenly veered in front of me, stopped, and taking off her helmet, shook free her long hair. We go my room, she asked. The French war, the American war, the war against the Khmer Rouge had all come and gone, yet Saigon seemed not so different from what Green had seen in 1951. Alive with adrenaline energy and the excitement of arrival, free at last after 20 hours in a plane, I stepped into an internet cafe to try to catch the scene while it was still alive within me. It's eerie, I wrote to a friend who'd grown up in the same neighborhood when I was six years old in Oxford. Fong and Fowler, out from their room on the Rue Catina, are all around me. I can almost imagine green raincoat buttoned tightly about his throat, slipping around the next corner. It's like stepping into his Vietnam novel. As I tapped away at my excited account, trying to inhale the smells and ironies to send across the waters to England or New Mexico or wherever my friend happened to be, a woman slipped in from the New York Saigon bar next door. Green would never have called her a woman. She was a girl as confounding as any of her cousins who attached themselves to foreign males abroad. With a beauty queen face and a tigress air to her, and I was sure a keen head for numbers. She was tiny and wearing high heels, and her legs were long and shapely. 
Business must be slow in the New York Saigon today, I thought, as she perched herself on one of the tall stools in front of a computer terminal and began logging on to her Hotmail account. If you have a dangerous curiosity about the world, or if you're just a writer of sorts, trained to collect observations, you become, in such situations, shameless. There's a splinter of ice, Green wrote in his memoir, in the heart of a writer, and he needs that sense of cool removed to do his job as any diagnostician does. I looked over, while deep in my message, to see what the young lady was responding to. It was, of course, a love letter from an admirer now in Germany. Dear Fong, it began, and the immemorial cadences of half-requited love tumbled out. You know, I could imagine my friend Henry saying, Green stayed in the Majestic too. I hadn't known. That was where he met the young woman whom he turned into Fong. Well, of course, Green would have said, if presented with such evidence, a writer's job is to see what will happen to a stranger tomorrow. He has to plunge so deeply into his recesses that he touches off tremors that find an echo in a reader. And if he goes deep enough into the subconscious, he'll find the future hidden there as well as the past. A writer is a palmist reading the lines of the planet. Ten years before American involvement in Vietnam approached its peak, Green was already writing about napalm bombings and describing CIA intrigue there and fumbled attempts to make contact with local proxies. The whole of the quiet American could be taken as a questioning of men's efforts to save a world that's much larger than their ideas. God save us always from the innocent and the good, Fowler says early on, with typical, if slightly showy, Greenian irony. Half a novel later, he tells the quiet American, I wish sometimes you had a few bad motives. You might understand a little more about human beings. I look back at the real Fong now, typing out an answer to her faraway suitor in Europe. I think about you all the time, I knew she'd write, though misspelling a few of the words. I miss you. When you come back, Saigon. Then she noticed I was spying on her and gave me a long, slow smile, an invitation. I could be her fowler tonight, she might have been saying, or her pile. A watchful English-born journalist or a naive young graduate from the new world, so eager to save her and her country that he seems certain to ensure the destruction of them both. Now, that's just one typical example, but I could go on all night, and I won't, luckily for you, of the many other instances when I found myself inadvertently shadowing Green. I remember many years ago, I was staying in a tiny place in Santiago de Cuba called the Hotel Casa Grande, and I walked out of it one morning, and I got into a car to look around, and the minute I did, a stranger got into the passenger seat and promised to show me around. And more disconcertingly still, his name was actually Faust. Uh, <laughs> I wish I were making that up, but I'm not. Um, and most disconcertingly, when I got back home, a few years later, I was reading a biography of Graham Greene. And I read that 35 years before my trip, he had been in Santiago de Cuba. And in fact, he'd stayed in the Hotel Casa Grande. And in fact, when he had stepped out of the Hotel Casa Grande, he'd got into a car to look around, and instantly a stranger had stepped in and promised to show him around. So it's clearly an abiding feature of that dubious hotel. Um, I, I kept on reading the biography, of course, and at one point I found him making confession before a priest called Father Pilkington. And I remembered that the man who was my housemaster from the ages of 13 to 17, really responsible for my spiritual welfare, was a priest called Father Pilkington. And of course, it's not a very common name. So I kept on reading in the biography, 
And at one point, I found that in the 1970s, Green came up with this totally crazy idea of writing a play about a very obscure 19th century romantic painter and diarist called Benjamin Robert Hayden. And I remembered, of course, at the end of the 1970s, when I was a graduate student not far away from here, I came up with this totally crazy idea of writing a doctoral dissertation on, you can almost guess now, an obscure 19th century uh, painter and diarist, Benjamin Robert Hayden. Uh, and I don't think the connections themselves are so remarkable, but what was interesting about Green was that he was fascinated with such connections. And when he was in his 20s and was beginning to become known as a novelist, he suddenly put aside all his fiction and devoted himself to writing a long biography of the 17th century poet and rake, the Earl of Rochester. And if you read that book now, it's a curious document because as far as I can see, it says nothing new or original or unexpected about the Earl of Rochester. But it says a huge amount about Graham Greene and somehow in his late 20s, by looking at the Earl of Rochester, he seemed to anticipate everything that was going to happen to him in the next 60 years of his life. Like, like many in eminence too, he was shadowed for many years by a con man who went around the world doing dubious things in the name of Graham Greene. And so the writer Graham Greene that we know would open up the newspaper and see a picture of a stranger uh, in Jamaica or Geneva or places he'd never been, and the caption would say, you know, the writer Graham Greene, living it up. <laughs> or he'd, he'd check into a hotel and the phone would ring and it would be a woman fondly reminiscing about a romantic weekend that they'd spent together, but of course a woman he'd never met. Uh, at one point, the real Graham Greene was, in fact, apprehended on the grounds of being the imposter, uh, and he came to wonder if he was just a figment of the other man's <laughs> imagination. Uh, and this all had a particular resonance for him because his mother's first cousin was Robert Louis Stevenson, who, of course, gave the world the haunting and ageless parable of Jekyll and Hyde. And I think Green, more than most people, was conscious of all the many different people that we have inside ourselves. Uh, when he was 16, he tried to run away from his boarding school, partly maybe because his father was its headmaster. Uh, and he failed in the attempt. But astonishingly, for 1920s England, his parents, in response, sent him to uh, live for six months in London with a very colorful Jungian dream analyst and the dream analyst's uh, dangerously glamorous wife. Uh, and from then on, until the very last novel he published when he was 84 years old, over and over, Graham Greene returns to this archetypal story of a little boy leaving the daylight official upstanding world and literally descending into a parallel underground world where there's a colorful, charming, somewhat roguish man and his mole who become his, his alternative parents. And indeed, his first novel ever was about the, the conflicts within himself or the different people inside himself, and it was called The Man Within. So I began to think about why do we create these shadow fathers in our heads? And how much are they a response to the real parents or fathers who created us? And I thought, well, the best way to conduct this investigation would be, in deference to his first title, to write a book called The Man Within My Head. And, of course, I knew from the outset that the man within my head, haunting and possessing me, uh, was Graham Greene. But the more I conducted this inquiry over many years, the more I came to wonder if maybe the man within my head wasn't, in fact, my father, or just some shadowy aspect of myself. So I'll read a, a little section here that speaks to some of that. 
Green would not be surprised if I told him that he'd written his own life story, the only searching and revealing memoir he did write, when he was in his 20s, and thinking he was completing a biography of a man long dead, the Earl of Rochester. He had a clearer sense than almost anyone of his class and world of all the ways the subconscious is in tune with not just what happened, but what's about to come, and can write in fiction as he did in 1938 of the Indochina problem, as if knowing that it'll be a headline 15 years later, or could invent, as he did uh, in February 1934, a dead woman found in a railway station, only for a real dead woman to be found in a British railway station four months later. Writing for Green was always a form of self-examination akin to talking out one's dreams. It was also the reason he could never dismiss religion, much though his rational mind would like to. As a boy of five, he dreamed one night of a ship going down. He awoke to learn that the Titanic had sunk during the night. Twelve years later, he dreamed again of a boat sinking, this time in the Irish Sea. A few days later, he learnt that a boat had gone down that very night as he was dreaming in the Irish Sea. At least two of his novels arose directly from dreams, and the last book he produced was a record of his dreams, collected in diaries when young and for 24 years at the end of his life. One reason he always sought to spend the night alone was so that he could read what he'd written that day just before he slept. And then, while he was dreaming, the pre-conscious, as he called it, could work on the material as an outsourced accountant in Bangalore might, so that he would awaken with his narrative problem solved as he slept. I knew how this worked from the hours I'd put in at the desk. There was no magic in the process, but there was certainly mystery. I wrote once about a couple similar to one in life, but I ended my book with a couple apart. As soon as the advanced galleys of that work arrived on my doorstep, the couple, who had seemed very close in life, separated. I decided one spring to deliver my next book to my editor on September the 12th, 2001, before heading back to Japan. As the planes flew into the World Trade Center on September 11th, I couldn't follow the drama that was unfolding because I was busy proofreading my novel about Islam and its quarrel with the West. Sometimes my father would pick up a stranger's hands and read her fortune by looking at the lines on her palm. I silently looked away and assumed that this was what foreigners wanted of the mystic East. But years later, my friend Louis told me that his mother had said that my father had seen things in her hand that no one could possibly have known. One day, my father stopped in the middle of a reading and refused to go on, and the young woman, so eager to hear about her future ended up throwing herself over a bridge, disappointed in love, six months on. Growing up in a household with so rich and vibrant a sense of spirit spooked me at times, so I took shelter in the robust scepticisms of school. I was more than happy to close the door on forces I knew I couldn't control. But travel itself is a journey into the limits of your knowledge, as every truly alien culture shows you, sometimes terrifyingly, lines of power you'd never guessed at. In Haiti, Green's protagonist sees the loyal soul who's become his only companion in an empty hotel suddenly turn into something else and release something dark and atavistic, primal, in a voodoo ceremony. In Kenya, during the Mau Mau Rebellion, the very person many a Brit had taken as his faithful and all-knowing Jeeves began, as Green put it, to drink on his knees from a banana trough of blood and enjoy sexual connection with a goat. 
And if you credit such bush devils and Catholic voodooists, and this, of course, is the heart of Graham Greene's work, then it becomes impossible to write off the Holy Ghost. It sometimes seemed that Greene was never able to discount the existence of God precisely because he believed so fervently in the existence of the devil. It doesn't stand to reason, does it, that there could be shadow without light. Now, of course, there's much, much more I could say on all of this, but since we're about to have a conversation, I'll, I'll try to wind things up now and just say that um, all his life, Graham Greene was haunted by a fear of seeing his house burned down. And, of course, that's a very curious fear for a little boy growing up in quiet suburban England. But lo and behold, when he was in his 30s, during the Blitz, World War II, suddenly German bombs hit his home and it was reduced to ash. And he never really settled to another home again. Uh, when I was in my mid-30s, I was one day climbing the staircase in my parents' house and I looked up and I suddenly saw that the home, our home was ringed by 70-foot flames. And three hours later, this Californian wildfire had wiped out the house and everything in it except for me. And I, I began to think, goodness, these correspondences with Green aren't quite so amusing and diverting after all. And we rebuilt our house, as most people do, on the very same property. And we were told, well, you're completely safe for 30 years. It'll take a long time for the brush to grow back. <laughs> but as your, your laugh suggests, just a few years later, we were surrounded by flames. And then again, and again, and again. And I describe this in the book, partly because, of course, these were dramatic events that made an impression on me, but also uh, because for the Buddhists or for mystical Christians or Islam, many people in Islam... All of life is a burning house. And when I write about my own life in this book, I'm trying really not to write about me so much as something metaphorical that applies to all of us. So I'll just end this portion of the program by reading something from that section. <clears throat> there were fires raging all across the hills around our house, and I was sitting in a downtown restaurant with my mother and my wife, Hiroko. I'd flown into Santa Barbara two days before, and driving along the empty road that leads from the airport to our house ten minutes away, I'd looked up into the hills to where the lights of our home shine alone on a ridge, and my heart had stopped. There were two bright blazes of orange cutting through the darkness with a speed and efficiency I remembered from the time when our house in the same location had burnt down with me beside it some years before. I accelerated wildly up the hill and started taking the curves along the mountain road leading up to our solitary house at a crazy speed. The air to the north was already red and full of smoke and as I pushed the car to go faster I saw sightseers along the side of the road gathering to watch the unearthly light show. Great towers of orange a hundred feet high rising from the valleys just below our house and the smoke turning the sky into a sickly pall. I swerved, brake screaming, into our driveway and summoned my wife and mother out to see what was happening a mile or two away. It looked to be remote still, but I remembered that during the previous fire, the flames had raged through the brush at 70 miles an hour so that an orange gash in what looked to be a distant slope was suddenly a pillar of flames arcing over our living room windows. The next day, we awoke to the sound of helicopters whirring overhead. The sky was a grisly, blood-red colour. The house felt hot already, and although the smoke seemed to clear as the wind shifted and returned us to a placid blue midsummer day, as the afternoon went on, the sky above the ridge next to us turned a hideous end-of-the-world colour, or discolour, really, 
ash falling around us like snow. I went with Hiroko down to the post office, and as we came out after a short transaction, the whole suburb around us was black with coffee smoke. We looked up to the hills to where our house and our far-off neighbours were, and all we could see were one, two, three slashes of orange angrily starting up across the slopes. We began to drive home, and switching on the radio, I heard that our house and the few up the road had been issued an evacuation warning. I turned into our little road and began driving up it, and the announcer on the local radio frantic said that the evacuation warning had been turned into an order. We had to leave now or we would be forced out. We drove the remaining five minutes at a crazy speed again, collected my mother, her dazed cat inside a little cage, gathered as many precious papers and photos as we could in five minutes, and then tore down the road again, fire trucks coming past us in the opposite direction, plumes of smoke seeming to rise from all the valleys and the crevices in the hills, the air so thick we were choking already and driving out of what seemed to be an oven, the huge flames cresting above our house as if ready to engulf it. Now, barely 20 minutes away, downtown Santa Barbara was dreaming through another quiet blue sky afternoon, a miracle of calm. The angry smoke and orange burns to the north seemed to belong to another universe. We had to go about our life as usual. The next day would bring a fireworks display along the beach for July the 4th, and the day after that I was due to perform a wedding ceremony for a college friend who was flying all the way over from England for the ceremony. There's a story of the Buddha, my mother began telling us now, perhaps to take our mind off the conflagration, and I listened to her, though usually all the wisdom that came from her, a teacher of comparative religions, I tried to block out because I was a son. When his closest disciple, Ananda, asked him what was the greatest miracle, she went on, walking on water or conjuring jewels out of thin air, changing the heat of one's body through meditation or sitting undisturbed in a cave for years and years, he said, simply touching the heart of another human being, acting kindly, that's the greatest miracle of all. Ah, the Church of Humanity, in other words, I piped up, like Graham Greene. I didn't care that I was citing the very writer my mother had liked when I was at school and I had mocked. You remember, she said, not unexpectedly, who it was who told you to read Graham Greene. <laughs> it was... What he always believed in, I went on, the human predicament, the possibility for kindness and honesty even in the midst of our confusions and our sins. He could never quite bring himself to believe in God. God was the other with whom he played his incessant games of he loves me, he loves me not. But in humanity, he had the strongest, if most reluctant, belief. In our fallenness lies our salvation. (laughs) The other two looked at me blankly, nonplussed by this explosion. But what I really could have been saying was that we were now in the world he'd made so real to me in his books, at the mercy of much larger forces, pushed back to essentials without a home. The only thing you could possibly do in such circumstances was see that so many others were in a similar predicament and reach out towards them. What you shared was not faith usually, but unsettledness. Up in the hills, meanwhile, the fires continued to blaze. Thank you for listening so patiently. Piku, thank you very much. Uh, it was a wonderful reading. And of course, I, I uh, 
some of the there's one passage the, the first passage in particular also struck me when I was reading it. But I'm going to ask a slightly different question before I come to there's some some feature repeated feature of the 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 book that I'm curious about. But the first question I want to ask is about uh, a certain what I think may be a difference is fundamental difference between you and Graham Greene, and is that in Greene's novels, which may be different from his life, I haven't read his his uh, biography. In most of his novels, I'm familiar with the the central character labors under a sense of loss of religious belief. Mm. Catholics. Yeah. Mm. However, the, the the doctrine has been separated from sentiment. They retain the sentiment, but they disavow the belief mm. or the doctrine. Mm. You, you find that in uh, definitely in the heart of the matter, uh, in uh, the power and the glory, mm. and perhaps even in an attenuated form in in the quiet American. So there's the there's, uh, doctrine or belief have been severed from sentiment. But they retain, they disavow the, the doctrine, but retain the belief. Mm. Unfortunately, the belief also becomes a motivating factor for certain crucial decisions that they take. Mm. At certain critical times, the, the sentiment is what gets them to, like the, 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 the priest in the power and the glory, mm. deciding to stop, instead of crossing, run across the border, yeah. to stop to give the guy yeah. uh, to absolution. Yeah. And so he's captured. Yeah. Now, this odd, shall we say, uh, this odd, uh, in a way, problem mm. of belief severed from sentiment, mm. which we could name it as a form of agnosticism. But mm. I think uh, that the word agnostic or agnosticism is too simple to capture the complexity of it. What I wanted to find out is that where are you at in terms of the relationship between belief and sentiment? Because I suspect that the way you've configured belief versus sentiment or belief and sentiment may be quite different from from green, mm. precisely because of your mother, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> your mother and your philosophical father. So it's a question about, yeah. about um, a question of the spirit. Mm. Uh, where, where, have, where do belief and sentiment lie in your bosom? What a wonderfully searching question. It's a real luxury to be talking to somebody who reads so brilliantly and, and thoughtfully. Uh, and you're right, because Green called himself, as you know, a Catholic agnostic. And he said, just as you were suggesting, that he had faith but not belief, that he had the emotional readiness to surrender to something larger than him, but he can never get his rational mind around it. Uh, and, and maybe a bit of that speaks to me. I think one of the things that moves me about Graham Green is that I always sense that kindness was much more important to him than doctrine. What you do is more important than what you believe. Uh, And I read recently a famous physicist in Princeton saying, I'm a practicing Christian but not a believing Christian, which is an interesting distinction. I think Green would fit that. Just as you said, the whiskey priest, if any of you have read The Power and the Glory, you remember he's a priest who does everything terrible. He drinks, he has a mistress, he doesn't begin to observe the, the text of Catholicism. But in the crunch, as Arthur was saying, he gives up his life to administer mass to somebody and, and reaches out to the people who are suffering and in some ways acts more heroically than a saint or a pious priestwood. And I, I suppose I'm attracted to that. One thing I share with Green is that I've never been comfortable in sitting in any category, whether it's a country or a faith or any kind of... Even this book doesn't sit within any genre. 
and, and like you maybe, but certainly because I grew up as a little Indian boy with an English voice and an American green card, now living in Japan, I felt that <laughs> none of those places could begin to comprehend the whole of me and that I would have to make my life almost trying to create my own categories and then to blow up those same categories. So I think Green, green was a believer who refused to be a member of any group. Uh, and that it's interesting that somebody, some people say that he had all the terror of a religious believer with none of the joy. He never, Christianity was never a consolation or a support for him. It was only a source of, of guilt, and he felt pursued by some administer of justice. Uh, and he almost seemed to believe, need to believe in God because he needed to believe that he would be punished for the bad things that he did. So I don't, you're absolutely right, I don't go with him that far. But the sense that um, there's some spiritual logic in the world, even if you don't commit yourself to a single body or doctrine, I suppose that's attracted me as somebody who can't or hasn't been able to lay claim to any single uh, belief system so mm. far. Um, and I was going to say something else about that, but I okay. forgot. Well, the next question has to do with the Fung passage. Uh-oh. In your... <laughs> I was hoping you'd forget because, about that. No. But... <laughs> Because um, in both that one and an earlier passage where I think it's you're in Mexico uh, on a bus, mm. a, a woman walks up to you and mm. offers herself as a tour guide. Mm. And, um, mm. and you spend some time mm. with her it's touring, she's telling you things. Mm. And at the end of the, the, the evening, she's making uh, suggestive moves that, mm. you know, there might be possibilities after the tour. Mm -hmm. Which um, and it's it's interesting that <laughs> that you you mention in in that moment of of the offering mm. and your your attempt to, your your rejection mm. you mention I think the first time or maybe the second time you mention your wife right it's the first time yeah. it's the first time yeah. the first time you mention your wife and then also you mention that the woman has uh, two children yes now the, it's a tantalizing moment of yes. what if yes but you repeat the same formula with Fung. Yes. The fun yes, girl yes, yes, yes. over whose shoulder you are, you are, you know, yes. the one that you read. Yes. Now, this is quite different from uh, Green, at least mm -hmm. in his novels. Right. Because uh, in his novels, it is like we've just spoken about the, 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 the priest mm. who has a fair and, mm. and, and, and then the, the quiet American. Or, in, in his novels, then, there's not so much uh, hesitation right. and undecidability. Yes. Now, my question is that. Mm. Is this your normal formula? Because <laughs> <laughs> you repeat it. Gosh, it's lucky is, my is, wife isn't here. <laughs> is this your normal formula or is this a, a way of, of crafting a certain represented self? Hmm. Is that what you really do in, in real life? Huh. No, I don't mean it that in, right, in such right. a banal yes. way, but, yeah. but the fact that you raise the option yes, yes, more than once yeah. and then take it back. Yeah. So I was wondering whether there was yeah. not something deeper going on. Well, so let me tell you, too, I love the phrase represent itself mm -hmm. because you're right. When I've told many of my friends that this is, uh, this is neither nonfiction nor fiction, but I tell them there's a picture of my father and me on the cover of the book. But I tell them if you're expecting to learn anything about your father, my father or me, you won't. Because uh -huh. this is in some sense a manufactured self or the self that I need for this particular inquiry. The two, parts, uh, two ways of answering your question. The first is I think Green was a sinner monke. He always, made a, he always horrified even those people closest to him by talking about his casual affairs, which has always made me suspect he didn't have so many. 
and that in fact he was a schoolboy most of his life who was actually rather apprehensive about the world and therefore affected a swagger and confidence that he didn't really have. And the fact that he stresses those relationships suggests how much he in fact wasn't enjoying such relationships. Um, In terms of um, me, um, I think what I'm fascinated by and one of the things that really draws me to Green is what I would call riddles of kindness. And so Green described in great detail and prophetically, as as I said before, the conditions that he found in in Haiti and and Cuba and Vietnam and many other places. But what I think really lasts is that I sense his stories are really allegories about, about something that most of us have faced, which is you're walking down a foreign street and a stranger comes up with a hand extended. Uh, what do you do with that? Uh, and, of course, we face that all the time in Wellesley and Boston and elsewhere, but it's so easy to sleepwalk past that in our regular lives. Whereas travel brings you up with great immediacy, to use your word, against these moral and emotional challenges that often we don't know how to solve. Uh, so with the woman in Bolivia... She's a kind woman and a friendly woman, and she's, she's, um, she's interested in more, uh, more of conversation because, as far as she's concerned, I'm a millionaire who's suddenly been airlifted down into her life. And if Richard Gere were to come into this room now, I'd want to be his friend for the same reason. <laughs> who knows what doors would open to me that would never be open to me otherwise. And it must be said there are a lot of um, males in the same position in this book. Mm-hmm. I describe it one, at great length when I was in Havana, my first morning in Havana, a man came up to me in the street and said, let me show you Havana. And he was so interesting and cultured and kind, I gladly gave myself over to him. And then two hours after our meeting, he said, well, how about you give me your passport, I go to America, start a new life there, you go to the intersection, get a new passport, and then everybody's happy. Um, And I didn't take him up on it. (laughs) But I couldn't respect myself for not taking him up on it because I was thinking I'm living in a position of privilege and mobility and ease. He's in something akin to solitary confinement. What would be so terrible for me to actually um, engage in this and help to liberate him in some ways? Mm -hmm. There's no justification for not doing this, even though I didn't do it. And so I like the fact that uh, travel really keeps you in this place of moral unsettledness, Mm -hmm. where whatever you do is going to be the wrong thing at some level. Um, I I describe the Mm -hmm. the last of those uh, towards the end of the book is when I'm involved in a terrible car crash in Bolivia with an old school friend of mine, and he's in hospital, and the driver's in hospital. And a woman is very, very kind to us. A local woman who's a nurse goes out of her way to her way to give us advice and to help us get to a better hospital and to make all the flight arrangements and just selflessly gives herself for 24 hours to making sure that we can leave her country. Uh, and just disinterested kindness. But of course, the day that I got back to California, the emails started coming from her, saying, you know, I'm in Bolivia, and this is a difficult country, and I'm impoverished. Please, can you do something to help me? Uh, And of course, you would want to help in those circumstances, but you wouldn't know what the best or discerning way of helping her is. So uh, in that sense, maybe in those two instances in the first two chapters of the book, it's less the sexual aspect of it that I'm interested in than the the moral aspect, Mm -hmm. which is an innocent person wants you to help. And what do you do? Mm. Given that you're such a person of privilege, you can go to their country, but they can't come to yours. Mm. Um. I'll, final question, and then I'll open it up for, for uh, questions from, from the floor. Is that um, this is, has to do with um, uh, Green, Graham Green as a kind of uh, avatar 
mm. of yours. Mm. You know, it's an that's a great word. Or president, or let's. Oh, I like avatar. avatar. Yeah, it's a kind of an like avatar. You yeah, know. that's great. Um, mm. But um, because in a way, it's 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 a little bit uh, eerie or uncanny. Mm. The idea that somehow you. Uh, uh, your life is is uh, a chronicle foretold by another. Right. In writing, you know, it's right. a, it's it's a chronicle foretold by another in writing. Yeah. But of course, that may also be just because you yourself are a writer, <laughs> so that in fact it is only another writer that can produce or generate a chronicle of your life foretold. Mm. Or it is that actually you are a traveler. Graham Greene was a traveler. He went to many places. That, in fact, you have been on a quest for form, that is to say, to, to produce a kind of formalization of what is essentially a series of, uh, of feelings, sentiments, and, and ephemeral observations. And that it is he who has, in a way, produced that form beforehand. Mm-hmm. So it is you who are you are kind of miming him. So, of course, suddenly everything that he does or does not do, even the chance um, uh, symmetries seem to you to have been foretold. So my question is, to how much is your avatar actually a, produ- a product of your own quest for form? And how much is it uh, a real spooky you know, symmetries mm. and similarities, mm. you know. So is it your quest for form? Because as a travel writer, your life is essentially formless and yeah. he gives you that form. Or is it really, in which case, we should all be looking for form? Mm. Yeah. So that's my, my question. How yeah. much are you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. thank you. Um, and it's interesting because the way you're describing him is just the way a believer describes a religion. So you and I walk down the street and something happens to us. And if you're a believer, you say that's God or Allah mm-hmm. or, or the Buddha or whatever. And if you're not, you say that's an accident. And so I guess I'm a believer in green because I am investing him with the power to, to foretell my life. I'm mm-hmm. saying that it's not a coincidence, but he is, he's crafted that. Now, that said... I feel strong affinities with others who are not writers. So like uh-huh. probably most people in this room, there are musicians who for 40 years, when I listen to them, I think that is so uncannily close to my experience, which is what they're aspiring to do, of course. They're speaking for me and for millions of other people. At one point, I feel a strong sense of identification with the singer Leonard Cohen, though of course he's a writer also. And I at one point in this book had 10 pages about the correspondences and how Green and Cohen were really indistinguishable people and what's going on in these types that makes me so fascinated with them. Luckily for everyone here, I cut those pages out of the book. (laughs) But I could have done a similar book about Leonard Cohen or about Uh uh, filmmakers or whatever. But in terms of the writing, because that's such a beautiful question, I think Graham Greene lives most strongly in the minds or hearts of those people who travel. And I've noticed that in California, say, my friends who haven't traveled much, they've probably never read Graham Greene and never want to read him. But my friends who have spent time in any place, especially in the developing world, say that when you're trying to catch the sensation of a foreigner alone in a foreign country, not able to read the signs, not really able to tell right from wrong, not knowing what's going on, and, um, and unable to orient himself the one person who's really got that tremendously is Graham Greene. And I think that's why, although his novels were written 60 years ago, many people other than myself find ourselves in Graham Greene situations. And one, 
eerie thing when I was writing this book was I discovered seven or eight other writers who had felt possessed by Graham Greene. Oh. Some men and some women, but disproportionately. So I often think that there are other contemporary writers to him, Aldous Huxley or George Orwell or Evelyn Waugh, who in many quarters are more highly regarded than Graham Greene, and yet somehow he has a gift that they don't have for getting under your skin and invading the soul of the reader and making you feel... I think he had a great gift for intimacy on the page. Mm -hmm. And somehow many, many people feel possessed by him, often demonic, demonically possessed. There's a chilling novel called The Devil's Own about a young writer in London who writes an article and suddenly he receives an invitation from the aging Graham Greene to go and visit him in the south of France. And he goes... And the Graham Greene figure gives him a manuscript and then dies. And that poor young writer turns into Graham Greene. He takes over his house. He takes over his young mistress. Every time he writes, he hears a phantom pen scribbling in the distance. And somehow Graham Greene has literally taken possession of him. And what seemed to be a dream, which is that he got an invitation from Graham Greene, turns into a nightmare, which is that he loses himself and he gets inhabited by this guy, this stranger. Um, Time magazine, I don't think, is a great source of wisdom. But <laughs> when Graham Greene died, their obituary writer said, no writer more thoroughly shaped and invaded the 20th century imagination than Graham Greene. And I think that invaded is brilliant. It's the best word I've ever read in Time magazine. Because that's suggesting exactly what I'm saying. He had some quality for getting inside you that maybe more accomplished writers didn't. Mm -hmm. So again, in that sense, I don't think I'm... Uh, so particular. Mm. Um, and one thing I was going to say in answer to your first question, not that it's very relevant, but um, there's a book I just read that is coming out by Alain de Botton. Some of you may have read his books before. Next month, and it's called Religion for Atheists. And he's, his point is that he's a non-believer, but he feels that all the religions of the world have great things to offer us in terms of solace and guidance as we struggle through suffering and loss and death. And that the secular world somehow hasn't been able, in its shorter period perhaps, to come up with the brilliant rituals and ceremonies and uh, traditions that Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism have for dealing with the fact that your mother just died or um, your, your lover just disappeared or whatever. And it's an interesting way in which he's, and it goes back to your first question, as I say, he's enlisting the devices of religion without the formal imprisonment of a single religion mm -hmm. to say something in the human spirit longs for that and therefore many, maybe that's the reason many people relate mm -hmm. to Green because they want some sense of order in the world or protection or justice but they're not always ready to subscribe to a, a formal doctrine. Mm -hmm. Of course there's another name for, for uh, religion in a secular world and it's called Macy's. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all very much for listening. <clears throat>